Kia ora Māori. Welcome to this session of The Word, uh, Christchurch Spring Festival 2020 here at Christchurch Art Gallery, Te Puna o Waifetu, which is um, called Poets Laureate's Choice and supported by the National Library of New Zealand, Te Puna Mātouronga o Aotearoa. I wish to acknowledge the mana whenua of uh, Otau Tahi Nai Tua Huriri. So, yeah, I am the Poet Laureate of Aotearoa, David Eagleton, and this is Te Kore, which is my tokotoko, which I received uh, two or three weekends ago at um, Matahiwi Marae in Hawke's Bay. And so, quite a substantial tokotoko um, made by Jacob, uh, carved by the master carver Jacob Scott, and he put it all together. Um, it's quite heavy. So, it's, it's called Te Kore, the void. Um, because Akamoto uh, uh, blessed it and, and gave it that name because he was looking at it and he noticed that at, at, at top, uh, sort of this knothole had appeared uh, during the process. And it, so it's like a, a, a hole in the centre of this black wood. Um, and so now I've got to live up to this and try and write a poem about Te Kore and uh, become my companion. So the, uh, poet, or, uh, the poet laureate staff. Um, so there's actually 12 poet laureates, and we each get our own tokotoko, and Scylla has a tokotoko as well. But, so um, this session is about landscape, the landscape specifically of Te Wai Ponamu, as expressed um, in the poetry of the poets alongside me here, Scylla McQueen, James Norcliffe, Kay McKenzie Cook, Owen Marshall, and Bernadette Hall. How might we find national belonging in landscape? is the question. We ourselves are made of landscape, weathered and seasoned in the springtime or in the autumn of our years, as it may be. Walt Whitman wrote in a poem, if you want me again, look for me under your boot soles. That sense of the real, the grit and dust, seeds and chaff, the leaves of grass, the camber of the road, the sand between the toes. So this session is about the power of language to shape our sense of place, transform and sharpen our vision. The hardest thing of all is to see what's really there. And where the bloody hell are we? Or where the bloody hell are you? The tourist slogan used to say, well, we are here and elsewhere is now here as distance looks our way, in the words of Charles Brash. We have a government with principle, purpose and a sense of direction and they can and should draw strength and inspiration about location bound in by hard borders, making us all look in inward harder at our writing and our literature, which captures our existential moment in time the music of what happens where we are. So these poets celebrate in diversity the view from our place, landscapes that soothe the soul and make identity, belief, uh, environmental, sustainable, historical, geological, nation and belonging, as inscape, myth and legend, the humdrum and the quotidian turned into lyrical language. In her blog recently, Kay Mackenzie Cook wrote... Um, uh, sometimes it's good to ponder the geographical features of where we live and take the time to think about what lies underneath our feet and what simmers along a line of sight and what has formed the hills and landmarks. Um, I moved from Akarana, Auckland, to uh, the South Island, to Dunedin, Otipote, a while ago now, and have travelled away again, but have ended up returning and, and um, settling in, in Dunedin. So a bit like a migrating bird, I suppose. So I'll just conclude my introductory remarks with um, two poems of my own. And this first poem is set in central Otago. It's called Distant Ophir. Some of you may know Ophir. It's on the, uh, off, just off the rail trail in central Otago. Distant Ophir. I went looking for the nightingale, for the rose, and found corrugated iron, scent of wild thyme, cry of a hawk. I felt a breeze lift in the orchard to waken the leaves from slumber and entangle memories in apricot heat. Monday was wash day, Tuesday ironing, Wednesday cleaning, Thursday baking, Friday shopping, Saturday sports games, Sunday meant church, promise of roast dinner, air stood dry and warm beneath pine trees, Crickets leapt over sunflower radiance. Summer's elixirs glistened in green jelly. 
Jam was given in peach and cherry. Quicksilver sank in the foxed mirror. The breeze, a stir of quiet fingers, plucked a flower, plucked at flowery puffs of petals, fluffed sponge cake, buttered big scones. Furniture stacked, empty windows blank, fine bones showing, faded curtains folded. The farmhouse went for a knockdown price. If I peer hard now through the late afternoon, I can almost see as far as distant Ophir and cargo from Otago raising the dust. Um, thanks. Uh, um, I'll read another poem, a final poem. It's just called Southern Embroidery. A killjoy's claw, a feathered dawn, the liar's tripwire that traps birdsong, a hawk's lunge, a car's speed, magnetic mountains burning white, turquoise lake, skeletal rock clack to sound the glooms of algal blooms, freak-out traverse, funky forest floor, blood-hot springs and hail's cool millions, a rainbow sifts gravel for colour, rusty prayer wheels of seagulls turn, the whale's moor pulls everything in, while octopus tentacles with motion seek sudden fanfares of dolphin whistles. Sooty shearwater flocks crowd the sky, drawn black thread, thicker and thicker, on a single breath float moon and feather. Uh, the, um, so the poets are now going to read uh, in turn, and, and beginning with um, Scylla. Um, Scylla has published 14 collections of poetry, uh, possibly more, and she has written that her habit of keeping a diary has shaped much of her work. Arts journalist Gilbert Wong in the New Zealand Herald wrote, for her, the landscape of Otago and Southland sings an ancient song which she feels to her very bones. And Scylla herself sent me this, um, the landscape lets me in, whether I'm walking, drawing, writing or contemplating, I feel that it grounds me physically and psychically, helping me to focus, to belong. So please welcome Scylla McQueen. Tēnā oops, here we go, look, I have to turn this down. Tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou, tēnā koutou katoa. That's a good way of doing a sound check, isn't it? Well, greetings from Bluff, from Motupohue, where I live and have lived for 25 years now, which is amazing. The last 25 years have gone past very quickly. But I thought I'd read from uh, my earliest collection, uh, a poem which is called Living Here, which is about living in New Zealand and um, how I felt about it then and still feel about it now. Living Here. Well, you have to remember, this place is just one big city with three million people, with a little flock of sheep each, so we're all sort of shepherds, little human centres, each within an outer circle of sheep around us, like a ring of covered wagons. We all know we'll probably be safe when the Indians finally come down from the hills. Comfortable to live in the safest place in the world. Sheep being very thick and made of wool and leather being a very effective shield, as ancient soldiers would agree. And you can also sit on them, of course, and wear them and eat them. So after all, we are lucky to have these sheep in abundance. They might have been hedgehogs. Then we'd all be used to hedgehogs and clothed in prickles rather than fluff. And the little sheep would come out sometimes at night under the moon and we'd leave them sources of milk and feel sad seeing them squashed on the road. <laughs> well, anyway, here we are with all this cushioning in the biggest city in the world its suburbs strung out in a long line, and the civic centre at the bottom of Cook Strait. Some of them hill suburbs, and some flat suburbs, and some more prosperous than others. Some with a climate that embarrasses them, and a tendency to grow strange, small fruit. Some temperate and leafy, whose hot streets lull. 
So here we are, again, in the biggest, safest city in the world, all strung out over 1,500 miles one way and a little bit the other, each in his woolly protection. So sometimes it's difficult to see out the eyes, let alone call to each other, which is the reason for the loneliness some of us feel and for our particular relations with the landscape that we trample or stroke with our toes or eat or lick tenderly or pull apart. And love, like an old familiar lover who fits us curve to curve and hate because it knows us and knows our weakness. We are calling fiercely to each other through the muffled spaces, grateful for any wrist brush, cut of mind or touch of music, lightning in the intimate weather of the soul. You don't have to feel bound to clap, really. It's... Right, now, let's get into it. I thought I'd... Um... Could I give you that, please? I thought I'd read a, a poem which sprang... A very simple little poem sprang from my concern about mining. This is called Mining Lament. And um, it's after a painting by a, a, an artist called Christopher Aubrey done in Aparima in Riverton in 1870. And it's a painting of a gold mine, open cast, the place called Round Hill, which no longer exists, of course, because it's been mined away. Mining Lament. I went to see the golden hill, but it had all been mined away. All that's left is an empty bowl of yellow gorse and rutted clay. But it had all been mined away, except a clay bluff topped with stone. In yellow gorse and rutted clay, one stubborn relic stands alone. Only a clay bluff topped with stone remains of the hill the painter saw. One stubborn relic stands alone of a rounded hill of golden ore. Remains of the hill the painter saw, rutted clay in a stumbling stream, a rounded hill of golden ore, sluiced away with a sluicing gun. Rutted clay and a stumbling stream, all that's left is an empty bowl, sluiced away with a sluicing gun. I went to see the golden hill. Living in uh, Bluff, the weather certainly is part of my life and of everybody who lives there, and the landscape and the seascape, of course. Um, so I thought I'd read just a couple of my little time steps from Bluff, which is a series of little poems about rain. I won't read them all, just some of them. This early sunny morning, when shadows are long and bees are breakfasting, the air seems to become liquid, reflective, in fine alignment. The weather in the house is clement also. Inevitably, something will spark a jolt, and the images move and change in interference patterns, producing resonances that harmonise or jangle as turbulence fills the house and peace nudges in like the tide. The house is quiet, lace curtains bellying slightly. The air is full of water, charged up for a thunderstorm. Lightning, one, two, thunder cracks to the northeast, after scent of electricity in the air. I imagine a giant solenoid, a lightning-fed magnetic coil within the mountain, a current of electrons, a spiralling magnetic field, a mighty lodestone. Motupohue affects the compass. Simultaneous past and present. The history of the house lies around it like a field. 
as history shimmers like heat haze around the hills and islands. Magnetism shimmers around the mountain's core. Past in present, a spring in movement, folded like ripples, opening at the impulse of thought, flowering into memory. In the shadowy kitchen, the fire mutters. Slowly the sky is lightening. I open the window, cool air on my hand. Long grass, macrocarpa, houses, fences, wooden power poles leaning at all angles. The southeast wind is salty. By the stone steps, a small bay tree, a poet's tree. Time is of no account. It seems to me that beauty is quite plain. And lastly, I'll read one which I enjoy reading, also out of my earlier work, exactly the same as my later work, really. <laughs> How to make a wind harp. Fashion a frame for the harp, as strong as fish, from bones of water, filament thin and clear as an obsession. Enclose in the frame a shape the wind knows, for instance, the contour of a hill or the space between branches. Unravel some birdsong from among the undersides of clouds and reel it out of the wind to make strings for the harp. Take moonlit bone, red rusted iron, and mist, and weave a music among the strings, so that when you touch them and set them to a song, they have their own particular voices. Then play the harp with fingers full of fear on the acute periphery of laughter. Thank you. Thank you, Ursula. Thank you. Um, our next part is... I'll just consult my list here. Um, James Norcliffe. James is a poet, writer and editor. Um, he's also he's produced a baker's dozen of fantasy novels for children as well. Alan Riach, writing in Landfall, described um, James Norcliffe's poems as being surrounded by an atmosphere of summer lightning... Together with uh, Joanna Preston, um, James edited the important landscape anthology uh, Leaving the Red Zone, a collection of poems on the Christchurch earthquakes. And um, James sent me this. I was born in Kaitaia, a settlement between Dobson and Greymouth in the Grey Valley, a sawmill, a school but no pub or church. Left as a child but the sentimentalist in me still feels something of a West Coaster. Today, I live with Joan and Church Bay in the dry Canterbury landscape of harbour and hills I have come to love. So please welcome James Norcliffe. Thank you, David. And uh, it's really nice to be with such wonderful uh, friends and poets. Uh, actually, the place was Kaiata, not Kaitaia, um, but never mind, never mind. Nobody knows about it. <laughs> uh, anyway, Kia ora katao. Uh, I would like to return to Kaiata in my first poem. Uh, behind the house we lived in was a sawmill, and uh, one of the things my mother was always scared of, and she was scared of so many things, uh, was the fact that we might wander over to the sawmill and not, not wander into the saw, but wander into the, the sawmill, uh, the sawdust pits, because they were kept, they were alight, and they kept putting more sawdust on top, and she worried that we'd fall through the crust. Well, it's unreasonable, I suppose, and be incinerated. Back of our place. Before the green hills, the red and yellow hills of sawdust. Out back, 
the river was black. Still waters, deep. You could fall through the sawdust into the smolder below, drown in fire. The river was full of boulders, black sticks. Some could jerk into eels. You could fall through the railings and through your reflection, drown in water. And the screaming teeth, the flying saliva of the mill could get in your eyes, fire and still waters. Out back there were good lessons, the via media. Watch out on either side and don't be too sure of the middle. Keep your eyes half open or half closed. Don't get cut up. Now, on the uh, Akaroa Highway, you pass through uh, Carrara, and if you don't want to go to Akaroa, and who would, you can turn right and go down to Birdling's Flat, which is, which is a wonderful place. This is quite an old poem. It's so old it actually references leaf springs, and I don't think there are many cars with those these days. Birdling's Flat, Carrara. Oh, by the way, I believe um, Carrara. One translation is Place of Talking Lizards, which is a lovely, lovely idea. It was a place of magic, talking stones and unblinking lizards on the dry hills. The wind blew jackets wide open and the cries of wild discovery away. The gravel sucked back into the sea. The marum grass lifted and fell. The old car had rolled over a road which rolled over compacted dunes. The leaf springs groaned and the shock absorbers were in need of glycerine. Sand flew at the windscreen and flickered there after the handbrake finally creaked and still flickered at our eyes when we ran from the car into the wild wind, our hair sweeping like marimgrass, donkey jackets flowing, laughing, crying, abracadabra, motocarara, blind to the lizards and deaf to the stones. One of the loveliest years of my life was spent in Dunedin in 2000. And uh, of necessity, because Joan was still up in Christchurch, I travelled from Christchurch to Dunedin quite often. This is a road poem. It references um, Hampton and uh, uh, Kia Point, I think. Um, Incidentally... um, Fiona Farrell said when she lived in Omaru, uh, she went on her honeymoon to Hampton. (laughs) Which is possibly one of the reasons that marriage didn't last too long. (laughs) Gershwin on the car stereo. Heading north just past Hampton, keeping just far enough above the limit to fool all those hidden gotcha flashbulbs that flower along State Highway 1. Here and there, those little trellis crosses and George Gershwin with strings and things trying to tell me how easy the living is. But I'm completely deaf to it until to the left, Pacific breakers crashing and smashing on hard grey sand made me think of every seventh wave and of the six degrees of separation. So I ease off as a corner approaches far too quickly, remembering how carbon monoxide once eased me into a mad sleep and had me slalom down the white centre line by that phallic monument just south of Omaru, where I woke up in an empty paddock with my wheels spinning and my feet where my head should have been and right Then I know, right by Herbert, I know Herbert is no place to die, so I check my wings, wind down the window to let in the sky and the gorse, the broom, the pussy willow and a summer wind to blow away summertime and tussle my hair, so like a friendly uncle, that living between 100 and 110 doesn't seem so very difficult after all. Now, I spent a lot of my time... Uh, my family lived in uh, Waimangaroa, in, uh, down from Denison, but up north of Westport. And uh, it's a very typical sort of West Coast town and, and reflects what's happened to a lot, much of the coast. It lost its two churches. It lost its uh, railway station. It lost its school... And biggest tragedy of all, it lost the railway hotel. 
Um, and this is a poem called The Map Maker's Mistake, which sort of references Waimangaroa. By the way, its most famous resident currently is, uh, is uh, Becky Manawatu, who lives there. Um, and this is called The Map Maker's Mistake, and it talks about that old idea that when map makers uh, put in the old days made their maps, they put a deliberate mistake and defoil those who would copy their map. In the bottom left quadrant between two contour lines, the map maker carefully inked in the name of a tiny settlement he called Orangmal. He imagined a single resident sitting on the steps of the war memorial at the crossroads, there to catch the late afternoon sun. The man would lay down his newspaper and wonder when the council was going to do something about the Monbretia clumps and the barbed billows of blackberry choking the roadside ditches. The bus shelter across the way had seen better days. The railway station would see no more. The first no longer hoped for a bus. The second had abandoned hopes of a train. The weather wall of the old hall with its rusting iron and peeling paint distressed the man. He did not want to think of its sagging stage and frayed curtain. Still, there was much to be grateful for. The sun was warm at his back. Tar as black as Indian ink shone on the line that was the road. Nearby, a small lake was hatched in blue and the air was still pungent with tea tree. Smiling faintly now, the imaginary resident would pick up his paper and resume his crossword. A seven-letter word from here now suggested Arangma, and nowhere was there a more satisfying place, the mapmaker thought, to circumvent a plagiarist. Those of you who are crossword fanatics may realise that Orangma is an anagram of anagram. <laughs> That's smart, wasn't it? That's silly. Finally, I'd like to uh, uh, reference where I live now. And this is, this is a poem about Church Bay and looking across the hills. And it, it deals with the... Um, it's called the harbour. And it... Uh, uh, and Jones... Uh, Mother Dari was, uh, in her last days, Joan used to spend a vigil with her and she used to go across alone at night called the harbour. Beyond the window, beyond the wax, wax eyes and the lancewood, the harbour lies. Grey today, its ever-shifting colours, moods and tides are beautiful, deceptive. The hills too, between which it stretches, are at once seasonal and constant. The little lighthouse, like a lollipop with its red and white livery, sits on its rock. Here and there, yachts lean to a wind I cannot see or feel. There will be spume and a cold rushing as they pitch and jibe, but from here they scarcely seem to move. Yesterday I took the ferry to the port. The sea was rough and the catamaran bucked and thwacked, making the older children laugh and the dogs whimper. It's a short crossing, a flurry, and then it's over. Nothing to write home about, really. All the same, there is some place between here and there, then and now, I cannot quite inhabit, although it inhabits me. Inhibits me, too, to be mildly playful. There is the calm of distance and the chaos of intimacy. Grass moving on the hills becomes mere colour. There is the road, of course, that follows the harbour and climbs the hill. You drive it each day to the city where you continue your vigil. You at once take me with you and disappear from me. Distance, gestalt, waves, things are and cannot be seen. As the port cannot be seen from the window because of the huge black macacapas the German planted. The port is there because I can hear it. Sound travels across water. The beep beep of reversing trucks, piles being driven, booms, thuds, all. The agencies of industry, of distraction. Across the harbour, on top of Sugarloaf, is a tower. And below the tower, the all but unseen pass winds up the hill to a V in the ridge and disappears. Yet another disappearing act. It's an odd paradox that at night the road is more clearly visible. The headlights become small stars moving up and down the hillside. Small anonymous stars, one of which these nights will be you. Until your return, the harbour lies between us, a black mirror moving still. Thank you. Kia ora, Jones. Um, the next poet 
that I have on my list of poets that have invited a small select group of poets. Let's check and see who that is. That is Kay. Kay Mackenzie Cook is a poet, short story writer and novelist. She won the Jessie Mackay Best First Book Award for her poetry collection Feeding the Dogs at the 2003 Montana New Zealand Book Awards. And uh, this year, in an interview with Paula Green on Poetry Shelf, Kay stated that, I believe the spirit of the southern rural landscape is in my blood and firmly rooted in my innermost being. And she went on to say, being tangata whenua has its influence on my relationship with the land too, especially with Muruhiku. She sent me this statement, when I write about the land, uh, uh, the whenua, or the geography of place, it feels like I am attempting to capture a reflection of myself at home, the subject inside nature's more objective frame. So please welcome Kay Mackenzie Cook. Thank you, David. I've forgotten about half of those things I wrote. <laughs> The first poem, oh, by the way, it's lovely to be here. Thank you all for coming to hear these poems about landscape. The first poem I'm going to read is uh, called Southland. Taut this road we tear down, as tight as steel rope, strummed by speed. We feel its hum under us as it runs, it beats a tattoo under our thighs over the Waiau, Aparima, Oriti. Before Browns, we pull into a gate where lambs mew and rock to the bleat of mothers calling out with voices like humans. At our backs now, a spine of mountains, the Takatimus, caught and puckered shoulder to shoulder like brothers gathered for a family snap. On each head, the same blonde shock of snow. And this poem is called Near Alexandra. Uh, most of the titles of the landscape poems are fairly explanatory, and I didn't realise that, um, how unimaginative I'd given the, the titles. Near Alexandra. A western sky suggests the promise of air loosely tethered and space and light, of breath blowing through the pleat of mountains, warm wind through wire, of opening out an accordion of sun. Thank you. From my... Um, latest book, Upturned, I'll read three poems. The first one is another unimaginative title, <laughs> Buckland's Crossing. Um, it's a little crossing, as this title suggests, a river crossing, the Waikowiti River, and it's north of um, Dunedin, and there's a picnic place there, and that's what this poem describes, the picnic place called Buckland's Crossing. Dock, cow, parsley, dandelions, and to the east, dead manuka, sprayed broom to whisker a ridge pale. If I remain still enough, the country will play for me, the glottal stop of magpies. Show me the clucking river where full-figured willows mother the stone piles of an old bridge. Under the flight path of jets and bees, I hear rifle shots bash the hills and coxfoot worrying crickets wind and wind their watches. A fretful breeze peppers a plain grey sea of cloud and all around lichens smears of pastel green cushion sedimentary rock. The hunters leave, stopping to open a gate on the deck of their truck, some dead animal. 
Maniatoto. The clouds are black, the sky is blue, it's a black and blue day. Tussocks as flexible as air give way. We look for the picnic area, you remember trees, I remember rock. Everywhere the ground has been kicked over, stones shoved into tottering piles. Look, I say, it's so windy all the cows are sitting down. A gutted hill, a fence line hung with animal skins, a hundred hawks. I was born in Southland, Tuatapri, probably another place no one's ever heard of. And this poem is about Southland. Rivers, hawks, hills and trees. Softened by late afternoon, the hills finally melt. A hawk turns, its chest feathers ruddy with the last of the day. Another hawk, eating roadkill, waits until the last moment, then lifts off as slow as a Hercules. Today I'm impressed by the beauty of hawks and hills and how tall and long-suffering the ranks of poplars I'm taken by the shelter belts of northern Southland, their design and bulk, by how many shades of green run to the laps of hills so familiar they could be mothers, and rivers that meet you halfway, then turn to find their own way home. Rivers, hawks, hills and trees, they need no other names. And lastly, a poem that I think sums up my relationship with the land, and it was from the first book, and I don't think I've really described it any better since then. It's called Tongue Tied. The smell of the city still clings to me as I stand here. It's like standing beside someone I want to say more to. But the words won't come. I look out at hills with hides the colour of hawk, at giant slabs of rock painted with guano dabs of lichen that hint at a flip side, at bristled ground that peppers skin with the smell of earth. Under a clean sky's curve, I listen to a skylark's blue tirade. This land has scope. My tongue is tied to it. Thank you. Thanks, Kate. Kira. Um, sort of juggle these elements I've got here. Our next poet is Owen Marshall. Owen is well known as a short story writer and novelist. He's also published four collections of poems, most recently View from the South in 2018. One reviewer has written, Above all, his poems are redolent of the South Island, all wild winds and dry hills, sleepy summer afternoons, the shimmer of light on lakes, snow like whitewash on the Alps. Owen himself says... Almost all my life has been spent in the south of the South Island and both my fiction and poetry reflect my connection with and affection for the natural environment, history and lifestyles of this part of New Zealand. The environment shapes people and people shape the environment. Please welcome Owen Marshall. It's a pleasure to be here uh, with such distinguished companions. Thank you all for coming. Yes, I've lived 20 years in Omaru, nearly 40 years in Timaru, and I have a special affinity for the history and landscape of central Otago. Bannockburn. 
The sun has gone down on one knee to join us beneath the bleached parasol. Birds hang awry on the flax flowers. Metal sculptures pose upon the lawn. The blue river inlet is a power shell set below hillsides braided by the undulating vines and scarred by miners in a frenzy for gold. They couldn't know that what is left has more enduring value than all they sold. Friends and family are here, strangers almost as close, whose laughter mingles with our own, whose smiles acknowledge that we share such fortune to be encompassed by peace and beauty, with evening light lapping tussock heights, with burnished shimmer of cloudless sky, here, now, on the right side of the world, is a momentary awareness of that apogee in the singular privilege of being alive. In Boca al Lupo, be lucky, a woman once told me in parting. I have been, and hope she can say the same in some other place. Danzy's Pass. Walk the wind arch of this burnished place. Leave the gravel road behind like childhood. Tussock flayed by austere Waitaki winds is harsh, archaic and blown quite clean. Here nature still defies all subjugation and I rejoice in blissful arrogance standing solitary upon the lion's back. Night rain. While I walk back from the Mai Mai, steady rain begins. Unexpected because I can't see the clouds. The natural of it, the naturalness of it brings a sudden lift of spirit. Rain is benediction always for this East Coast land. There is a sense of obscure movement in the sheathing night, some release. Primal gratification on shelter belt pines, on gravel track, sheds, the winter turnips, on patient stock, rain falls. Like multitudinous clapping at a vast distance, this is the way the earth and sky knit together. Smile in the lubricated darkness, yes, Send her down, Huey, I say out loud. Huey, send her down. (laughs) Winter sun. I sit behind the rough stone wall shielded from the cutting breeze, but in the full face of a winter sun that is sliding down the blue sheen sky in a hurry to be home. In summer... Such modest warmth would pass unnoticed. But now I am relaxed, eyes half-closed as if in gratitude of unspoken prayer. The touch on skin, a welcome ministration. Ice glitters amongst the creek rushes. Two bonded paradise ducks swerve above with harsh yet joyful cries. The far gullies glut with purple, shadows shimmer and the outcrops darken. I must up and head away before the freeze begins. (laughs) Dunstan Dog in Winter High up there's no house in sight, yet clear cold barking comes from miles away. Bark then, you unseen stroppy bugger. Ring it back from bells of frosted sky and hillside. I hear you here at Welshman's Gully now dressed as Cambrian with gorse broom flats, an unnamed grave above the cutting and the tussock on high ridges. Bark, you bugger, in this chill morning and maybe someone kind will come to free us from the chain. 
monarch. In the wilt of high summer, rose scratches stung by sweat, I see a monarch jittering by, bright as a cathedral window in perfection. When it settles close, though, how frayed and near the end of brief life it is. Some panels are not there at all. The stitching of the lovely wings as bare as on a cruelly used silk fan. But then it lifts, floats, all blemishes lost in the joyous flash of movement once again, glad above the earth. All beauty may be this way, perhaps, a brave illusion worth any cost. And last one. Small child on a trampoline. And I see a little girl bouncing, fearless and alone upon a trampoline. Higher and higher until the perfect instant of equilibrium between momentum to the sky and the drive of gravity to the core. And she is transfixed there forever weightless, smiling, open-mouthed, dark hair flung out, skinny legs free of duty, hands outstretched as stars against the buttoned white flowers of the dogwood trees. Thank you. Bernadette Hall has published some 11 collections of poetry, writing in... Um, oh, kia ora, kia ora, Owen. Thank you very much. Sorry, I missed, <laughs> missed acknowledging Owen. That's great. Um, Bernadette Hall has published some 11 collections of poetry, writing in Takahe magazine. Reviewer Charles Dawson described Bernadette as one of New Zealand's poets most attuned to the countries and stories that nestle here. She refashions this place and time within the echo of other landscapes and speakers. Um, Bernadette herself sent me this statement. John and I live foolishly but very happily in a renovated polite batch at the... Polite, sorry, my, my mistake. <laughs> polite batch um, at the... Yes, polite batch at the northern end of Pegasus Bay in the Hurunui. I, um, I feel like I feel like I'm ventriloquizing. <laughs> I, she, says, she says, I have built up a beautiful garden here in the path of the Norwester. The Tasman Sea is a mere three minutes walk away, so it's a treacherous place, surely, but I love the three lagoons, a mokatere, mokatere, kere the floating mountain, where spirits rest on their way to Reanga. It's good to live like this, out in the open and surrounded by stories, some of them true and some of them imagined. Please welcome Bernadette Hall. Thank you. Is that okay? Can you hear? You can hear. Okay. Um, I, I would be really happy if you didn't clap. I was a high school teacher for 100 years, and if anybody clapped, I'd be really startled <laughs> as I was going through my work. So uh, wait till the end, and then, yeah, you could, you, you could, you could let, let, let happen what will happen. Um, the first uh, poem I'd like to read is from Makatere Floating Mountain, which was an extraordinarily beautiful hand-crafted um, book by Sarah Press. Uh, Malkatere um, in the Hurunui, uh, so commonly called Mount Grey, uh, which was named by a sea captain. Uh, Grey was uh, going to come down and visit, so he changed the name. Um, many of us try and keep the original beautiful name, Malkatere. When the mists come up from the, uh, the boggy land, uh, it looks as if the mountain, in fact, is, is floating. 
I hate it when you half turn like that, when you widen your eyes in disdain. What are you thinking about, little cipher, sitting there in the sun, tossing stones? Swales and snow peas, snow peas and swales. Caged and crafted like Gregor Samsa and Kafka's Metamorphosis, who is there willing to glow like wet stones in the wire gabion, like underwater pulses? The acolyte shows me a leaf. We were born on that leaf, on that shoot, our family, she says, and I am one of the best leapers. How lovely to walk with my arm around her waist. I am my own con man, she says, and she repeats it like the blade of light that repeats itself as it leaps off coca leaves into the river. So this is it, she says. This is the gold rush. And at the end of the sequence of poems, there are two uh, poems that come back. It started in Amberley, in the Hurunui, it popped off to Vanuatu for a second, uh, and now it's come back. There are three swallows on the wire. There are three swallows on the wire inside the water. There are three swallows skimming the water. There are three swallows skimming inside the water. There are three swallows and a lagoon and two mountains. One mountain is inside the water and one is inside the air. There are gauzy bandages of mist all down the east coast as far as bluff. Having to face our own despairs, we moved out onto the promontory. The ship was an illusion, a golden ship, so high in the water. He may not be such a beautiful man when he is older, when the bones take over. I'm so glad I went to meet you, little darling, walking towards us through the tussock. So it's sort of a sequence that wanders around the mountain, the stories in the mountain. Um, and the little blonde-haired child could have been my, could be my daughter, who's now 43. <laughs> but when we were living in Ireland, um, the uh, one of the symbols sort of of, of, of Irish um, freedom, and that was um, the golden-haired child, Pashtin's um, Fion. And um, yeah, my dad was born in Ireland, so I like to pop these things every now and then. So um, the, the next ones that I will read are Bad Girl, Mm, they're pretty bad girl in some ways, some of them. Um, they're sonnets, and sonnets tend to go along quite nicely and then all of a sudden they explode in the last two lines and you're not expecting what will happen. But these ones are set up. I mean, sometimes they might come out really beautiful at the end and it might actually be a love poem and then you get a great shock and you say, oh, I didn't ever think I could write a love poem, and there it is. So this first one I'll read to you um, is, yeah, it is a love poem. Gold rings round my ankle in the hammer pool. A hot drop on my wrist and my skin falls open like the gills of a fish. One hundred elderly women standing along the cluther with lighted candles in their hands. It's humbling. It's a necessary prayer for peace. And here comes the rain. It fills the leafy bowls and cups and spoons that the trees hold up until they tilt and spill their bright outpourings onto the dry earth. The ginger Tom is mooching. He's spraying everything within reach in the beautiful garden. How good it is to rise like this, my love, slowly into the light of your face. I gave that to John on our 50th wedding anniversary and he cried. <laughs> oh, we're so old. <laughs> but actually, we, yeah, I mean, in our polite batch, um, if it's an earthquake, we'll die of the asbestos dust. Um, and if the, if the, if the batch goes on, the batch goes on fire, um, it will explode. We're three minutes from the Tasman Sea, so already we're engaged in coastal conversations with the Huronui Council, um, and we have got a, uh, a sea wall which is built out of gravel and stone and sand, which sounds bizarre, but we're engineers, local engineers, have actually organised a very wide base, um, and it works as a soft 
a soft repeller of the ocean. Because if you think of Dunedin, where they've got a hard repeller, St. Clair keeps getting busted up all the time by the, by the sea. So we've got 30 years, we'll be okay. So I think John and I will be okay. This one is about the sea. And I've, the last line kind of makes me laugh like mad. Um, I've told you a bit about our history. And I think this poem maybe might have been able to be published by Laura Borrowdale in Aotearotika, but I'm not too sure. <clears throat> I've been out all night walking, talking to the sea. And what I was trying to say was, hey, you, stay right where you are. I've been a bit oh-la-la lately, a bit circumnavigatory since the earthquake, since the slaughter of innocents in the Riccarton Mosque. But what I was really trying to say was, thank you for that brilliant critique of my poem. It was the best thing ever, wave written on blotchy, weedy paper, splish, splash, splosh, and no, it wasn't excessive. It was exactly what I needed, a good old dunking. Was it Sorensen who spilled the beans about the boy limping home at night, drunk as a skunk and falling off his bike in the alleyway? How happy you are now, old man. Come here and I'll feed you. Is that sexy or not? I don't know. (laughs) Okay. The next poem is Centred in Central Otago. I was born in Alexandra and I have a photograph which I love, which is my mother who is a very beautiful woman in a flower dress um, and she's holding this baby. And that's me. Uh, But it's written for my father who died, crashed of a heart attack when I was 16 in my presence. And I just, when you're old, you know, time seems to be circular so I'm constantly thinking about his, his departure, I guess, and the effect of that. And, um, yeah, this is kind of a new thought. She's beautiful in her flower dress, standing outside the gate next to the quiet tree. There are tiny musical boxes there, no bigger than thimbles. Domestic, like her soft attention to her sister, full of allowances. A little cloudy something like a plastic button is growing in the left-hand corner of my eye. Humility, ah, yes. It's all about humility. If you were to come back, I wouldn't rush you. I'd pull the collar of your coat up around your ears. I'd lean in on you like a sister, like a mother. Be careful crossing the street, I'd say. You've been drinking and I'm worried about you. But he won't. One day I'll join him, <laughs> I guess. Now, my last um, poem is... Um, it's got a new title. It was published... Uh, some of these have been published in um, an earlier form. This is called um, New and Selected Poems. Oops, the new... Um, probably, I don't know if I should have called it new or not, it just really means that it hasn't been published in a book before. One or two of them, you know, have been published in magazines and things. This one is, the title is, From the Hymnal of Short-Tongued Alpine Bees. This is their prayer. Let us give thanks for the flushes and zones of colour in the herb field, for the alpine genera, the wire rush and the tangle fern, the sheep sorrel and the cat's ear, the gentians and the astelias and everything that grows under the edge of the melting snowbank. Let us give thanks for the crane's bill geranium and the mouse-eared myosotis, for the ranunculus, little frog mouth, little friend, for the feathered nival zone, for the bug moss and the tarn, for all that is and all that has been and all that is to come. It is for us to keep our courage firm, to nurse our appointed pain, to await that which springs a blaze of itself. And I'll just read you the note on that very last phrase, which is that quotation about that which springs a live uh, um, flame of itself. The quotation is an excerpt from Adrian Rich's essay, Women and Honour, Some Notes on Lying. The full sentence is, truthfulness, honour, is not something which springs ablaze of itself. It has to be created between people. 
And what a shame some people aren't doing that at the moment <laughs> around the world. Thank you. Uh, kia ora, thank you, Bernadette, and thanks. I'd like to thank all the poets here uh, for accepting my invitation to be part of Poets Laureate's Choice this afternoon. And um, if you, uh, there isn't time for questions and answers now, but if you want to ask um, the poets anything about their work, um, there's an opportunity at the book signing, which takes place after this. So uh, if you want to make your way to the book signing table after this session. Thank you very much for coming along. Kia ora. Good afternoon. <laughs> <laughs>